The late 1970s saw a surge in reggae music's popularity in cities far from its roots, in the streets, backyards, and dance clubs of Kingston, Jamaica. New York City was no different. The deep, steady bass lines and potent melodies of the genre grabbed the attention of even the most unsuspecting teenager. One of those teens was David S. Cap. Cap was gifted one of Bob Marley's albums by a friend in high school. One listen, and he was smitten. He has been a lifelong fan of reggae music and all things Caribbean ever since. From his days as a founding crew member at MTV, through his journey in law school, the sounds of reggae have been at his side and have provided him both excitement and comfort. What most don't know, however, is that he has returned the favor. In 1992, Cap was instrumental in the launch of CSN, the Caribbean Satellite Network, the world's first 24-hour TV channel dedicated to Caribbean music. With no budget, a limited staff, and even less equipment, Cap walked away from CSN after two years with great experiences and even better stories. Here is the story of David S. Cap's wild two-year ride with CSN. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. VHS air checks and stuff like that. You, you go on YouTube, you can find the old uh, air check and the promo tape we did for the network. When yeah, it came out I, I just watched a promo tape with uh, Philip Michael Thomas. Philip Michael Thomas, yeah. Yeah, you interesting fellow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the, yeah, I, you know. CSN is um, <laughs> definitely, and for our generation, it really God was you, the catalyst, man. Um, for me personally, well, like, you know, like I said, I'm I became happy to hear it. Mm-hmm. Say, keep talking, keep talking. I'm happy to hear it. I'll be quiet now. Oh no, 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 I was just saying. You know, for me, I, I, I studied journalism in college, but in the back of my head, I always wanted to do like music videos, and I was always experimenting with cameras, and of course, video cameras back then cost an arm and a leg, and. Um, yep. I got into film school and, and I was like, yeah, this is home. This is where I need to be. And I'll say, you know, CSN really was the catalyst for that for me because until that point, we had only consumed American television. And yeah. I was the, I was the nerdy kid who was, I'm so deep and steeped in music and film. Um, I was the, the little kid going to the, the one bookstore in Anguilla and leafing through Black Beat and Ride On and Rolling Stone and the lady that worked there. Um, obviously, as an 11-year-old kid, she you know, couldn't buy all of them. So she'd let, allow me to come in and, and read. I was probably the only kid allowed to do that. But when CSN came around, it was a game changer because I was now seeing the faces of the people I listened to on the radio all my life. That wasn't possible before CSN. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> you know? Well, well, in the days before CSN, um, I don't know. Did you, get, did you guys get MTV in Anguilla? Not at all. We didn't get MTV until the two thousands. BET came in because, around the same time as you guys. Because that's how I started. Because uh, in nineteen eighty one, I uh, was very fortunate in that the, there was a convergence of luck and timing and training in a most unlikely place, which was. Buffalo, New York, where I also met my wife. So I'm triple lucky in that respect. But I was working at Channel 4 up there and uh, doing an internship while I was a senior in college, working on my degree and working as a sound and lighting tech for all the local bands. And um, I found myself in an interview for a new channel. Hmm. And... uh, they said to me, you know, you want to work on this? They, they took me to the television. They had a television facility in an old military quonset hut behind Channel 4. And I heard they were hiring. And I went down. And they said, okay, this guy's good. He understands the equipment. And they just said, you want to you work on Long Island? I said, yeah, I'm from Long Island. Said, can you be there next week? I said, sure, I can be there next week. 
And the next week I was there, and MTV launched the week after that. Wow. And uh, the first night I was watching all the vice presidents and uh, push the buttons and stuff. And the second night I was on the air pushing all the buttons. So I was... Uh, <laughs> I was I was lucky. I was when I was in Bus State. I was I went there to learn broadcasting, and by my third semester there, I was teaching it. So they were paying me while I was there as a student, and I was teaching you know rudimentary studio techniques and lighting and shit like that. Awesome. So when I got out, cable television was the big thing. Cable television was as big as the internet back then. Yeah. And the cable TV was exploding, and I went to work launching MTV, and I was part of the crew that put that on the air in August 1st of 81. I was hired in July. We went on the air August 1st. And I was there for the next almost 12 years. And while I was there, I got a law degree at night. Okay. Because they, they stopped playing music videos. <laughs> well, they, they went in a different direction around 86, and I saw what was coming, so I got a law degree. And by the time uh, 1992 rolled around, and uh, I'd heard about this thing that was launching in Miami, and um, I was put in touch with these folks who were trying to launch this Caribbean channel. And I say that because it, I, I, didn't, I, I wish you had seen TV in the 80s because it was you know, completely white. And pre-Michael Jackson, it was just completely white. And they was just, you know, we're the rock network. We're not playing black music. And that was I'll say I do I do remember I do remember that because um They wouldn't say it in public. Between eighty four and eight that's what they said in private. between eighty four and eighty six, I actually lived in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands with my mom and dad. And um Ah. Yeah, so we had uh we had cable there. So you had M T V? Yeah, we had cable there. Now, let me ask you a question. Were you ever up in the middle of the night, like two and three and four o'clock in the morning? And you saw like a video by Third World, and you were like, "Whoa, they played some reggae!" Did that ever happen? No, I was four and six years old. I was in bed. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, if that ever happened to you, that was me. <laughs> because back in those days, if the networks, the networks didn't have the such precise controls and timing as they did back then, so sometimes we'd run a little early, a little late. And you'd have to make adjustments in the programming as things went on you to keep the network on time. So in the middle of the night, when the program directors went to bed, I was allowed to put in a music video for time if I needed to. And I always made sure there was at least two reggae songs in the playlist. And I would always put them in. There's a certain, you're supposed to do this one, and then I'd just fuck it. I'd put the reggae one in all the time anyway. And... They, they wouldn't even know about it. You know, programmers wouldn't even see it. So, I, I, if you ever saw that happen, that was me. So, <laughs> I guess not. MTV was split into two different parts, really. There was the city, and then there's Hop Hog, where I lived and worked for all those years. I still work in that area, but in the court system now. Yeah. Um, it, it, it still works that way for the most part. But what happens is all the filming is done in the city where it's easy to get guests and all the transmission is done in Hop Hog where the bots, uh, meaning the commercials and the music videos and the promos and everything are mixed together. Yeah. So they would shoot DJs all day long. They'd go, hi, that was uh, Twisted Sister and now Quiet Riot. Made the Black, slate it, next. Oh, that was uh, Billy Squire. Hold on for more... B-52s, Fade to Black, Slate It. And that's what they would do all day long, mm. cranking out, you know, several days of VJ segments, and then they'd ship them all out to me in Hop Hog, where we would integrate it live on air. Got it. So we were the ones pressing the buttons or playing the commercials and playing the songs and playing the VJ segments and making it look live. It was never live, except New Year's Eve sometimes. Um, and that's the way MTV worked, and that's what I did for, you know, almost 12 years, long enough, long enough to get a pension, thank God. <laughs> and uh, then I found out what was going on down in Miami because I'd gotten my law degree, but in 92, the uh, economy was very bad. It was one, another one of those recession things that yeah. we're having now. And uh, there weren't a lot of law jobs, so I kept my MTV job, and I would work until 4 p.m. I work 8 to 4 at MTV, 
and I had an office about two minutes away. I'd go to my office and do my law practice at night. And I would do entertainment work, stuff that I wanted to do. I got a really cheap office from a very dear friend of mine from law school, another Jamaican fellow. And, uh, and I still have an office with the same Jamaican fellow I went to law school with, except now it's with his son, who was born back then, who's now a full-grown attorney the size of a linebacker. So uh, <laughs> in any case, I'm diverting. I'm going off. But, you know, I had, I had deep Jamaican connections back then. I, I traveled to Jamaica in 86 for my honeymoon. That was the first time I'd been there. And then I went back nine times in the next few years. I went to Sunsplash three times. Uh, I became very close friends with a guy named Lister, Lister Hugh and Lowe, who's the longest-running reggae DJ in the world. And I, uh, I record a show all the time. I, I still do. I run a Facebook page for Lister where we record a show and post it and everything. And uh, then I found out about this thing that was launching in Florida, and they immediately flew me down there and hired me the next day. So in October of 92, I found myself in Florida with my wife back in New York. Uh, <coughs> so honey, uh, pack everything up and follow me in a few months. I'll be, come back as soon as I can. Bye. And uh, luckily, I was in my early 30s then, a long time ago. And uh, I went down to Florida and it was just, <coughs> it was the biggest disaster I ever dove into head first because I started out with a team of people who, uh, none of whom had any experience. There wow. was about a dozen people on staff, none of whom had ever done any sort of network television work. And uh, nevertheless, we had to start from zero and create a promotional tape for the network. They had already announced the launch date. Oh, you don't want to miss your launch date. <sighs> you don't want to miss your launch date because that kills credibility. They had built a facility that was unusable. Couldn't transmit from there. Impossible. The scientific and physical impossibility to transmit from this beautiful, beautiful facility they had built. Um, and so when I got there, I had, you know, like one month to find a new facility, hire it, figure out a satellite uplink, and get this fucking thing on the air. Luckily, they had some people on board ahead of time who had been collecting videos for a few months, and I made lots of contact for them. And uh, Chris Blackwell was a huge help to us, and uh, supplied a lot of programming to us for free completely free of charge as an island records um, yeah as in the whole bob marley live concert video catalog he mm. gave it to all to us for free wow he used free free he was super kind to us uh, back in those days but the point is my main role was i had to go down there and get that fucking thing on the air and it was like a an airplane going down crashing and not because people were bad or they didn't have the right intentions. Just none of them had the right experience. So luckily I found an old colleague who used to work with me at MTV. She was living in Florida. I heard her right away. And the two of us began recruiting people and training the ones we had. And we built a 24-hour television network in less than 30 days. And we got it up and running. We had a, we rented a full-time remote truck and put it, parked it outside on the lawn. And uh, on our launch date, we, we launched. And um, I was probably put in charge of programming, productions, operations, and engineering. <laughs> All yeah. for everything. <laughs> because from that moment on, there was never any budget to do anything except pay people salaries. Everything we did from that point on, everything you saw on the air was free. We didn't, we didn't have any budget for anything. <clears throat> we bought a studio. We bought a working television studio and some big cameras and equipment and people. But we had no budget to do virtually anything. Every once in a while, if we travel, travel to Jamaica, we'd get the, we'd pay for, tra I mean, we only did this a few times, some crew to travel abroad, uh, but for the regular day-to-day -day programming, the budget for everything was zero. And uh, that was the miracle of CSN, is that we actually stayed on the air for the better part of two years with a budget of zero. And uh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you went to Florida to join the team. So whose brainchild was CSN to begin with? Um, well, I had this idea years before any of these people. So I love and respect them all. But this was my idea first because I was a director on the air at MTV from 81 on. I would be day to day pushing the buttons and playing the videos. And I always dreamed that somehow, some way, 
I could just buy, because we had a, a huge library of videos with reggae and other stuff that I love, but they just weren't playing it. When we first went on the air with MTV, there was only 85 videos, and we didn't get many more easily or quickly, and they didn't add to it very quickly, but by the time I left MTV, they had a huge library of music videos, and they just weren't playing most of them. And I always dreamt that I could take all the good shit and start my own network. And then when I found that there were some people in Florida that wanted to do something similar, that's when I joined them. When I got there, they didn't really know what the format was going to be. There was a big internal battle between the people who were there ahead of me. Uh, there was one fellow from the JBC. His name was Garth Rose. There was a newsman, Roy Brown, who was there uh, ahead of me. There was two other guys. One of which is uh, named Mike Cotton. He has a video production company in Florida and he was he was their blues guy because it was supposed to be sort of an international feel they had his his whole programming thing was blues and country and roots music and that was part of the original plan as well Garth and his people wanted to do you know ballet and opera theater and that sort of thing and they brought me in and asked what they should do which direction they should go in and I made my presentation which was simple you're going to play music videos because, A, they're free. You can get all your programming for free. Mm -hmm. And I'm the guy from MTV, so I know. You get all this shit for free. They're happy to send it to you for free. F-R-E-E, -E, free. And this is the Nashville of the islands. It's a natural resource. The Caribbean is the place where it's all happening. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be happening always, forever, in this area of the world. So... There's no reason not to set up the premier network for this sort of programming right here. You can have your news and other culture and stuff, but this has to be the anchor. And for what it's worth, that's my two cents. And they didn't. <clears throat> and the next day, they hired me and went with my proposal. And that's why it became uh, mostly a music video network. But but again, it's not even because of me. It's because they had no fucking money. Delroy Delroy is extremely wealthy by Caribbean standards. But by the standard of people who failed at putting up television networks, he's a pauper. Even Oprah is having trouble pulling it off. Her network is not making money, and nope. it may not make money for years and years, and it may never make money. And bigger stars in their era than her have failed. Bing Crosby failed. The, the, the Dumont network failed. There's a whole litany of failed channels, especially in the cable television era, for people who just didn't have the money to make this happen. And Delroy was, you know, the smallest game in town. And it was a bad time to launch a network because cable systems were full. They didn't have empty channels. You'd have to fly them with cash to get those slots if they didn't have a big Caribbean population, for example. And later on in my career at CSN, I went on the road to meet these affiliates all over the United States and try to get them to sign on and that's another whole story that's really, really boring. So I won't go into it. <laughs> no, no, trust me, I'm, I'm enjoying all of this because you're putting a lot of things into perspective for me, I, even personally, but, as somebody that I, you know, I mean, I, at one point wanted to really, start one. Well, you know, the, the problem, as I'm sure you know, is that the technology has outpaced all of us. And any kid who wants to see whatever they want to see can see it. And... MTV, uh, you know, I've always been very disappointed in their decision to, to go away from music programming. And the reason they had to do this is because of the advertisers. Yeah. They just didn't want to buy spots in a half hour of different music videos with people tuning in and out based on what they liked or didn't like. So they said, let's do half hour programs. We'll do long form programming. Yeah, fine. So I'm thinking, great, we'll do half hour programming based on music. But no. They decided to go with the, the reality the real world. thing. And, and they didn't even do it the way they wanted. They wanted to do it all very innocuously with robocabs built into the apartment where the people in there would be generally, you know, observed innocuously, you know, like animals in a zoo, which to me I think would be much more interesting. But it was also expensive, so they didn't do it. They would just hire a beta cam crew for 500 bucks a day, and they would follow these people around. It was pain And it's always been painfully obvious ever since. That what they call reality TV is highly manipulated. Yeah, it's contrived. And, yeah. and they ply them with alcohol and other things, you know. So, 
I mean, I don't have to tell you I hate this shit, but I literally left the network and got a law degree rather than stay on that ride. Um, so, and then when CSN presented itself, it's like, I remember talking to my wife and saying, you know, this is what I've always dreamed of doing. If I don't say yes to these people and go to Florida and help them, this may be the only chance I ever have to do anything like this in my career, and I'll regret it the rest of my life if I don't go and they fail. Um, you know, I went and they failed, but then again... At least you tried. Yeah, but I'd reg- if, they, if I didn't go, I'd have regretted it my whole life. And the sad truth is, if I didn't go, they never would have gotten on the air. Because these fuckers didn't know... God bless them, they're nice people, but they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And they were spending tremendous amounts of money building this huge, beautiful facility in a part of the in a part of Miami where you cannot have a broadcast uplink. It's too close to Opelika International Airport, and the search radar would go by every ten seconds and go through your signal. And none of them think. I mean, they literally had the building, you know, sixty, seventy percent built and finished inside and out before they hired me. And we scientifically determined that it can't happen. And it was, a, it was a real disaster. And I pulled that one out of my ass, tell you the God's honest truth. In true Caribbean fashion, I pulled that one out of my ass. And to quote, uh, to quote myself, uh, and people ask me what I'm doing, what are you doing in Miami, Dave? I, and I would tell people this, I'd say, I'm running a television network using stone knives and bear skins. <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay, so so you're in Miami. The the the, the network has started. You're going on the air. Um, so what? <laughs> well, first of all, let's back up. How were you attracted to Caribbean music in the first place? Did you like have mm, fr- Jamaican friends in Long Island or? Yeah, well, what happened was, well, in high school, somebody gave me Bob Marley's live album. Okay. And we, when I was in high school, in my junior and senior year of high school, which was 76, 77, we played the grooves out of that thing, and vinyl, by the way. Uh-huh. And I was really into this guy, and we loved him. We loved his stuff, and we played it all over the place. Then I went to college up in Buffalo, and uh, I was hired to launch MTV on Long Island. Mm-hmm. So I wound up, I, gr- I grew up in Queens, and I wound up working on Long Island, which is <clears throat> the same neighborhood, practically. Yeah. Anyway, so on Long Island, we have Lister. And Lister, if you don't know him, you should, because he's a Jamaican fellow. And he used to work for Chris Blackwell at Island Records. And he produced, along with Blackwell, some of the biggest best reggae albums of all time, including the early Black Uhuru albums. Mm. He's the guy that brought them to the U.S. He's the guy that brought Bob Marley to the U.S. And if, <clears throat> if you look it up, you know, look up Saturdays a Party with Lister. He's been running, he's been on the air at Stony Brook for more than 41 years. And he's been playing reggae here in Long Island for more than 41 years now. And he's also on the air in Manhattan on WBAI mm. every week. And I'm not sure how long he's been out, but he's been a long-time presence on the radio here in New York. And I became a huge fan, and I started taping his shows because I was always working. At MTV, I was always working 24-7, shift work, in and out, you know, weekends, holidays, just working, working. So every weekend, I would record his show, and I'd spend the next week listening to it. And I became... You know, the whitest authority on reggae music that there is. Uh, and, uh, and the cat up the age in Jamaica, you know, I'm in the Gwine and the Honeymoon in Jamaica. I'm in Gwine and Negro, you know, because you want to go to Negro. <laughs> anyway, so I learned uh, to uh, understand what they say. Because, you know, if you listen to Jamaican records long enough, they're talking in Patois, you got to learn it or give up so I just learned it and I learned what they were saying on all the records I was listening to and I started playing I started, you know, I, I've been playing in bands since I was like 12 and uh, I was just into the whole thing I was always into the whole thing and uh, then <clears throat> when this uh, I heard about see it and, and actually I became close enough to Lister where I'd 
I go into the studio. I go to Jamaica. I, I delivered something to Michael Rose for him one time. I think I brought him some, what was it, brake shoes? <laughs> he needed brake shoes for his motorcycle or something. <laughs> I've been to Kingston. I mean, find a white guy who's been to Kingston. <laughs> I've been to Kingston. Me and my wife, we went to Kingston. It was fucking great. Um, and uh, we just love it, man. It's the best. And then when I went to CSN, the best part is that when I arrived in Florida, they said, oh, I do love Soka. And I'm like, Soka? What the hell, Soka, right? What's that? <laughs> I, I, I didn't know. I really didn't know. And then by the time I left, not only had I worked with almost every other, and I, I didn't work with, but I met almost every one of my reggae legendary artists that I loved. But I also met all these soca artists who I became came to love. I, I, and I got to see all these artists because they were always playing somewhere in Miami and they always invite us down and we'd shoot video, we'd shoot interviews, we'd shoot little news segments, we'd bring them in the studio for interviews. And they would show, and, and, and you know, Jamaicans, they fucking didn't just show up unannounced. One day he's working, all right, we're working on this, uh, we have these plans to do the event. Who is it? It's John Holt. John Holt, John Holt's here. What's John Holt in here? He was just in the neighborhood. I, I, I bring him, go put him in the studio, set up an interview. And everybody stops working and they're all gathered around. They all need autographs. They all need pictures. And it's, it's chaotic. But it was, it was the best job I ever had. And the worst job I ever had all in one. It was just fucking amazing. Because shit like that would happen every day. And uh, I got to meet, you know, uh, I worked with Byron Lee. We actually worked with him editing commercials for his Jamaican Carnival shows. I've seen it. I got to see him a couple of times. I got to see the Roaring Lion perform. And he was, he was in his 90s back when I saw him. Um, and we got to meet, you know, all the biggest soca stars of the day. And uh, name name an artist. We worked with them, you know. Even even like like Michelle Boudram. I worked with her. She was just a little girl. Yeah, she was a little girl. Oh, oh, she's a big star in Trinidad. Bring her in Trinidad. Okay, bring her in. Yeah, she's really young. Is it okay? She, she had a song called um, "This Is My Party" or "My Party." Some some other party. <laughs> and and then like this young kid and this teenager they brought in and Michelle Montano. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's a big deal in Trinidad. Bring him in, we're going to do an interview with him. All right, is he okay? Okay, bring him in. Bring him in. And, and he's just a teenager. In fact, the greatest thing was, you know, I, I got in touch with my friend, uh, I don't know, who I'd known for years, because I got to see him here on Long Island. He had a place here in Brooklyn, in addition to Montreux. We brought Arrow into the studio, and by that time, Mikey Dredd had been brought in to do on-camera work and quote-unquote music director. Um... And I'm like, my hey, Arrow's coming. He's like, who that? Yeah. <laughs> who's, who's Arrow? You know who Arrow is? Uh, who's, all right, listen, here, come over here. I, and I had to give him the whole, this is who Arrow is. This is where he's from. This is, he's the king of Soka, even though Trinidad ain't so like that. He, he's, he's had more big hits of Soka than any other artist in art in the U.S., certainly. And he wrote Hot, Hot, Hot. He wrote Hot, Hot, Hot. And David Johansson had a huge hit with yep. it. What was the music scene like in the Caribbean uh, before CSN and after CSN, in your estimation? It's hard for me to say because I wasn't a citizen of the Caribbean at any time. I lived in Florida the whole time. Every February, all the executives and their wives would all leave for a month, and they'd all go down to Carnival and leave the white boy in charge of the network uh, all by himself. So I don't know what was like before and after, but I know what people tell me. And uh, what people tell me is that every bar and restaurant in the Caribbean was watching. Yeah. During the time we were on the air, every bar and every restaurant had CSN on all the time. I mean, if they weren't watching cricket or something uh, culturally important that was going on, if it was just bar time, CSN was always on. And that was the problem, that we couldn't get ratings. I, went to, I actually went to... Uh, National Association of Television Programming Executives Convention, and I met with the um, television advertiser, CAB, the Cable Advertising Bureau, to try to find a way to set up some sort of ratings because we were getting huge viewership in the Caribbean, but they didn't have anyone down there to quantify that. Yeah. And that's another reason why it didn't work, that we had tremendous ratings and we had no way to prove it. Mm. Um, but, but I tell you one thing, my wife and I would get off, we would, 
wear our CSN t-shirts and get off a cruise ship anywhere in the Caribbean and people go nuts because they recognize it and they're just screaming at us. And, and not in a bad way. They, they were like, they liked it. People loved it. And we know people loved it, but it was just, it was too hip for the room. And the truth of the matter was, even if Del, Delroy was significantly richer than he was, let's say he was 10 times richer and had 10 times more money to throw at this project, it still would have failed because as I told him in the beginning, you, you don't have the kind of money you need to pull this off, Mr. Cotton. And he's like, well, you know, he was always a big believer in the ingenuity of Caribbean people. So Delroy would sit me down and he'd say, well, give, you know, I believe that Caribbean people have endless creativity, you know, and endless energy. And that the Caribbean people, in spite of any sort of difficulties that may stand in the way, that Caribbean people will find a way to, to be pursued and be successful. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Delroy was famous for meeting with you and taking his meetings and go on for hours and hours into the wee hours of the morning until you just, he would just wear you down and you say, okay, okay, I just need to leave the meeting now and go home and go to sleep. And uh, he was a very persuasive man, very handsome. He had a different girlfriend every month. And, uh, and, and often he would bring them in with various titles that perhaps they didn't ought to deserve. But um, it, was, uh, it was a diversion. What can I tell you? He, he, went, he, he heroically tried to keep this network alive. And, and, and he kept us on the air for an awfully long time, even though the money to pay everybody would come up in a brown paper shopping bag in, in, ones, in ones and fives. Okay. And every, and every other week, my wife would meet a stewardess from Air Jamaica. She would meet them at the airport, and the stewardess would give my wife who was Delroy's personal assistant, who would give my wife the bag. And she would take that bag and uh, go to the nation's bank and look at the bank manager and hold up the bag and go, ching, ching, just shake it up and down. And you could hear all the, you know, little bills. And, stuff. and four people would go running and she'd spend the next hour in a room counting it all with them. I'm going to skip that part uh, in my story. <laughs> and... Uh, Every other week or so, she would grab like 80,000 J, uh, well, I don't know if it was 80,000 in Jamaican currency or American currency, I don't remember, but it would be a huge amount of money. And remember brown paper, they're coming back now with the pandemic, brown paper shopping bag. Mm-hmm. She would get a brown paper shopping bag full of little crumpled up ones and fives and shit. Um, and that's how CSN was paid for. Wow. Just wow. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole story behind the story. Um, but suffice it to say, Mr. Cowan was a very, very enterprising fellow who found lots and lots of ways to make money in, a, in, a, in Jamaica where there aren't that many ways to make money. He well, started out, he you know. started out making, making little gift boxes for little hotels. He would take soap and a toothbrush, a little toothpaste or something, and put a, a hanky and put it in a basket and wrap it with plastic and he'd sell it in the gift shops for a couple of bucks and he had a trucking company and he had a rental company or rental rented vehicles and he went into real estate and he had an airline for a few minutes uh, <laughs> it, it turquoise air for a couple of minutes I mean a lot of these uh, endeavors but I don't think the airline was ever much more than a, a kiosk at the airport but Nevertheless, he was always trying something. In fact, he, con- he came up on Facebook a couple months ago, and he's into alkaline water now. His newest uh, effort is alkaline water, which is supposed to combat the effect of our water, which is becoming more and more acidic. Is it true? Is it not? Fuck, I don't know. But uh, if Delroy's trying to make money at it, there must be something to it. He's one of these guys. But um, he's still around. He's still in business. He's in, he's in the alkaline water business. I don't know if I endorse alkaline water or not. I think the jury is out on these things. I think it's the, maybe it's the new chloroquine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> My next question, uh, you kind of answered it. I was like, 
how will CSN receive what you answered that. But what I'll ask is, how will CSN... People C- love CSN. People went nuts for CSN. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to ask, how, how did governments and, like, tourist boards, like, the, uh, you know, the, the authorities, how did they receive CSN? Um, we, I, I don't recall any sort of major interference. We often got help. We often did commercials for certain tourist boards. I don't remember which. We often got help from tourist boards when we went to shoot uh, abroad. Uh, usually it was someone from the tourist board who would set up locations and stuff for us. Uh, but I don't, you know, the things, the funny thing is that's the stuff that went smoothly. I don't recall the stuff that went smoothly as much as the stuff that went, that went really badly. And I'm not really likely to share any of that with you. But, yeah, yeah. That's uh, the, the stuff that went routine and smoothly, I don't recall. Usually the tourist boards, listen, the tourist boards were thrilled with us because it was a, just like for the Caribbean artists, it was simply a way to expose yourself that never existed before. People like Banky Banks. I mean, I don't recall this if it's 100% true, but I'm pretty sure that when I met Banky, he just fucking showed up at the network one day. He just like knocked on the door with his guitar in hand and he just showed up. And, I, and, and a lot of artists did that. You know, you'd open the door and, oh, it's Freddie McGregor. Holy fuck, come on in. And a lot of it went like that. They heard about us, about us and they would beat a path to our door. Um, and Banky would like, oh God, I, can't, I, hope this is, I hope this is true. But I'm pretty sure that when Banky showed up, I passed him on the road because he was hitching. Oh, wow. I'm pretty sure he was hitchhiking. And I remember, I mean, he's a huge guy, very tall, tall. big big brown leather cowboy hat, big yep. boots. Still has that hat. Strapped to his back. <laughs> I'm sure he does. But I'm pretty sure that when I got to the network and he came to the door, I had seen him hitching like an hour earlier. And I passed him and I'm like, yeah, I'm not picking up anybody. I'm, you know. Uh, no offense. You know, where we were stationed was a rather industrial part of town. The only uh, bit of um, civilization in that area, this all industrial area, the only bit of civilization, the channel, uh, the, the PDT, the, the PBS station was next door to us, and the the regional Krispy Kreme factory. It was, <laughs> it was, a, it was a building like the size of a large fast food restaurant, but all it did was crank out Krispy Kremes 24-7, and then they shipped them out to most of South and some Central Florida from there. I mean, I saw a bank, you know, like down by the Krispy Kreme hitching, and it, I just, no, nah, I don't think, I didn't even think about picking the guy up. But I remember saying, oh, there's an interesting looking fellow. Yeah. Went to work. Now he says, I'm like, does anybody know this guy? Goes, oh, yeah, that's Banky Bank. He's named from Anguilla. And uh, he was supposed to be the next Bob Marley. I still think he's going to be the next Bob Marley. Bring him in. We're going to interview him. Okay, bring him on in. Interview him. Got CDs. And we've been friends ever since. I mean, I never see him, of course, but he's super nice. And we had him back again for our live broadcast for that like, second birthday party or something. Was it our first birthday? And uh, we had Banky on every chance we got. And uh, we never Col- asked for a thing. He was super nice all the time, and I, I, I love his music. I only wish that he had become the next Bob Marley. He deserves it. When um when 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 COVID's over, you owe him a visit in Anguilla. He has a an annual uh, festival called Moonsplash. Yeah, I've heard about this. I've heard about this. Unfortunately, we have a moratorium on travel to the Caribbean. We went to Jamaica one too many times, and my wife insists we see some other parts of the world. So uh, we generally don't go to the Caribbean much these days. And uh, if I go back, it'll probably be just to go to Anguilla and stay for a week or two. Not no no cruising. And we're done with that after the uh, floating petri dish that is every freaking cruise line. Yep. So yep. Uh, we'll go stay at stay at the, the dune and stay with Banky, God willing. He's, He's building a couple of villas. I think he built a couple of villas there. So that's pretty pretty cool. You're uh, right on the beach. Sounds- Sounds perfect. I think as soon as this shit is over and we can travel again, I think we're going to need a, a week on the beach at the dunes with Banky and yeah. playing some of my songs. 
probably one of the best things I learned in uh, my years at CSN is that it ain't that hard. So I formed a band and I've been performing as highly unlikely for like 25 years now. I know. I see. I see your stuff on Facebook. <laughs> and it's, it's dreadful. Nobody likes it. But it's been a source of fun and companionship and, you know, an outlet for my so-called creative juices over the years. I mean, what do you call a garage band made of people who met in law school who are much too overweight and old and white to be doing it? You call it highly unlikely. It's like a Jeopardy question. <laughs> well, well, one of the reasons why, why I asked you... Your Go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, one of the reasons why I asked you how it was received was... Um, you know, as far as I can recall, in a conservative place like Anguilla, CSN, like BET when it started, got got a lot of heat because of... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, because of some of the music videos that were considered risque, like Murder, She Wrote by uh, Shaka Dimas and Playas, oh. and like Flex by uh, Mad Cabra, Flex, Time to Have yes. Sex. So you, you know, Anguilla's yes. very... It, it's still, it, I mean, of course, less so now, uh, uh, 20 years later. 20-something years later, yeah. but it, it, at that time, uh, it was very conservative and locked in, and, you know... They weren't playing us at the churches, were they? I mean, they were playing us at the bars. No, no, they were playing it in the right. homes, so, like, us... Uh, when CSN started, I was 12, so anybody from 12 to 16, uh, it was like, the kids are looking at well, this, I can't believe it! They, I think they even petitioned to, no, the, to the cable company to take it off. Didn't they have parental controls back then? I guess not. No, no. Honestly, I was involved in the day-to-day running of a 24-hour television network with a staff large enough to do maybe six. <laughs> so I, I was busy trying to keep the network on the air and trying to get new videos in, try to expand the programming so it wasn't just videos. So we were doing, you know, it was we had a nightly sports, uh, I'm sorry, newscast, yep. sportscast, and, and, and getting that on the air was extremely difficult because we couldn't afford to buy news feeds and buy footage. We were just ripping and reading. And um, our news department didn't like that. They didn't like being forced to work that way. And, mm. and I, I said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We, we, we spent all the money we can. I bought a package that includes all the flags of every nation in the world. When a story comes up from Grenada, we're going to put up the flag of Grenada and you're going to talk about it. When a story comes up from Anguilla, you're going to put up the Anguilla flag and you're going to talk about the story. Brilliant. If we have a photograph or we have footage, we'll use it. But we're not going to have footage. We're not going to have a news feed. You're just going to be reading and there's going to be a flag up above your head with the flag of Guyana. So do it or, or you're fired. Get the fuck out. <laughs> and I, I had to hold a gun to these, these people to make them do a nightly newscast. Um, so, you know, to a lot of people, you know, if you speak to a lot of people at CSN, I'm the savior that made it happen. And to a lot of people, it's like, you know, I'm the, I'm the evil devil guy who made them do a shitty job or something. I mean, we were paying people. Some of the, some of the people who worked there were just making like 300 bucks a week. And for the job they did, that's, shameful even in 1992 that was shameful but that's what they got and and that's that was the total of our budget to do creative work um there were people Delroy brought a number of people to, to invest in the network he brought in a bunch of people to help him run the place but no one would get a budget and i met with a lot of these guys one was craig claiborne very nice fellow his brother was in the nfl or something he was a big businessman and and I talked to him. I said, man, you know, I, I, I don't envy you. You're going to talk to Delroy about getting the budget for this place. It's like everybody finished. Yeah, so don't worry. I'm going to get a budget. I don't know. Don't you worry. And no, nothing. Get nothing. Delroy just wore him out. He spent five and six hours saying, well, I believe that uh, you people can do the job with just a, a courage and fortitude and uh, patience. And um, he wouldn't give anybody a budget. And he didn't have the money. So he literally, you guys were just money. operating off of like, okay, we need to pay this. Let's find the money for that. There was no set budget. There was no set budget for anything. And there was no budget for anything. You know, um, truthfully, when it started to fall apart, 
um, for me and Delroy was at one point long into the, I mean, towards the end of the network's life, we were getting really good notices in the newspapers, on television. We were on the BWIA uh, in-flight magazine. Everybody who flew on BWIA was reading about us. Um, and we were starting to get noticed. And it was looking like our work was starting to pay off. And then Dora comes to me one day and says, what did you do? I think that, you know, with your ingenuity and your spirit, I know you're very skilled and everything and your experience at MTV, blah, blah, and he went on and on and on. I think you could do something like the Today Show. Oh. So you wanted a right? morning show? wanted a morning show. And I said, well, go on. I would love to do a morning show. I'd absolutely love it. And, and back then, every, I mean... I had friends everywhere. And when I was at MTV, I trained people who went to every network in town. I know people everywhere. And back then, to do a live remote was like five grand because you had to have the satellite truck there. Even if you're on the air for five minutes, it was like $5,000 just to do a live remote, something you would do now for nothing over Skype. Right. And I said, well, you know, today's show relies heavily on remote content and people from all over the world. And we'd have to have a separate newscast. We'd have to have a, a, a news feed with real video, with real footage to do the news in the morning. Um, we'd need to hire a producer. We'd have to hire this many people. We'd have to hire talent. We'd have to have another crew to come in and uh, run camera. You know, in addition, because all I had was an operations staff and, a, and like a small production crew of like two, three guys who would do everything, including all the editing. Right. Wow. Um, wow. So. so um, so Delroy says to me, well, Dave, I appreciate what you're saying, and you know, I know you know, but, but I believe that you can do this on the same budget you have now. <laughs> so he, he eventually wanted me to do the Today Show for him on a budget of zero, and I just said no. I wow. said, Delroy, it can't be done. I can't do it, nobody can do it. And... Um, a few months later, he just stopped paying for the transponder, and it was all over. So just like that, there was and no, the, there was, there was no like grand goodbye. It was just, it just kind of no, dissipated. He, just, he told everybody, uh, and and the funny thing is, I was, uh, it's a long story, but I was leaving. I was going on vacation. I was going to Europe for a week. Wow! On a cruise across Europe, a two week, two week total trip, and. Um, and I had a, I was, I'm a, I was a lawyer, and I had a contract with him. And he just, when it ended, after almost two years, he just stopped paying for the transponder. And we went off the air. And the affiliates who I had sold this to were calling me screaming. Why didn't you tell us? Dave, you sold me a package of goods. I got my Caribbean client to wait for CSN. I made a big fuss about it here at the local cable company here in, uh, you know, whatever city it was. And then you just fucking go off the air? What the fuck is this? I'm like, dude. I'm just finding out about it too. I'm terribly sorry. I'll wow. look into it. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Because now that, that, that puts Europe up on the line too. Yeah, and, and it, it, it kind of fucked up my reputation a little bit. But what can I do? I said, here's Delroy's number. You want to sue him? Here's his number. And the truth of the matter is, when he went off the air, he violated his contract with me. So he went off the air. I served him with papers. I said, here's the lawsuit. Here's how much money you owe me. I'm going to Europe. I'll be back in two weeks. You know, have my check. And of course, he paid me. And that was the end, just like that, unceremoniously. Wow. Um, and there's a million other stories I could tell you about Delroy, but I'm not. I'd rather not. Oh, no, no, no. I actually just have two more questions. He meant, he meant well. He spent a lot of money and he meant well, but he just couldn't pull it off. I mean, uh, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos probably could pull it off. But right. Delroy. Uh, so actually, I actually only have a couple questions. Um, number one yeah, is, um, well, first, I, something I, you were talking saying earlier that reminded me about when I was talking about uh, introducing a whole generation to not only faces from the region that were familiar, but it, it's through CSN I discovered like Angelique Kidjo, for example. Yeah, I've seen her a bunch of times since then, and she's the greatest singer in the world. Yeah, I love her. And, and I was introduced to her by our first music director, a woman named Jamila, who was part of Chris uh, Blackwell's crew. 
she was the uh, she was the hostess at his hotel, and uh, she was the first uh, person that I was able to hire as a music director. Unfortunately, she would only show up to work two, three days a week. So I had to get rid of her. Oh, and Mikey Dredd came in. But she introduced me to Angelique Kidjo, and I will always be grateful. And I've, I've met her a couple of times since then. I've seen her locally, and she, thank God she's still around doing well. can't say that for every artist. I think she just won a Grammy, too. She probably. She probably did. I, I, she's been doing you know, like duets with every major performer in the world, and Honestly, I like her old stuff better. When she was at CSN, the album she did put out where Agolo. she was working in France. Yeah, that's it. Yep. All that stuff she did in France is fierce. I mean, it's just fierce. I'm telling and you, she's me, such a great singer. Me and my have boys. You seen her live? I have not. I have not. Oh, you're missing out. I know you may not get the opportunity that often, but if you ever get a chance to see her, God, you got to go see her. I mean, she just, okay. The show is starting. Everybody get up. Get up. You know, sitting down. Everybody get up on your feet. And she's just the greatest singer. I mean, one of the greatest singers in the world. No doubt about it. My book. I love that woman. She's like four foot nothing, too. It's so funny. I was waiting for my wife outside the theater in Huntington. We were going to have dinner before the show. And there's nobody there but me. This, this ugly white guy in a trench coat. And she just comes walking up. And I recognize her immediately. And I just like, Wah! You know, he just sort of shuddered, and she looked up, and she knew I recognized her. And she and she was looking at this big white guy in the trench coat, and I just, I just put my hand on my heart, and I bowed, and she was okay with it. She walked in. I think she walked by, and I was just like, I think I said, I love you, <laughs> and then she went into the theater. <laughs> I was just, I didn't know what to say. I was tongue tied. I couldn't even. So, talk. so she'd never been to the studio then. No, she never went to the studio, but we played the fuck out of her stuff. Yes, we did. Because it was right it was right up our alley. This is exactly what we wanted to do, the world music thing. And like I said, like when we started, there was also a substantial blues and country and world music segment that all kind of went out the window because people didn't really care for it. Yeah, she, the, the two songs you guys played for her were, I, remember, I mean, I remember this like yesterday, Agolo and a song yeah. called Batonga. And Quaba, uh, I think, also another one. Maybe. Yeah, uh huh. But uh -huh. I, I have, I have all of her records. I, I have every one of her records now. So I love her. I see her every chance I can get to her. It's a great concert. You, you really need to bring your, your, your family and everybody go see her. She's that good. She's worth it. Get a hotel room in the city if you have to. So we do. What um? How did how did you guys go about hiring talent at that time? Well, you got to remember, we were not an international television network. If we were an international television network, legally, we would have to be on Intelsat. And there's this agreement that says the international network shall, we're going to spare you the details, but if you're an international network, you have to be on Intelsat and you have to have all these agreements and you have to pay huge fees. And that's why we were always, quote unquote, a domestic television service serving America and just America. Mm. Um, the truth is all of our viewership was in the Caribbean, but technically we were a domestic service. We uh, did this on the advice of counsel because otherwise we would be breaking the law and we could get in serious trouble with the uh, communication authorities. So we were just domestic and we had like one cable subscriber when we went on the air and that qualified us. Um, but uh, that's the truth. We, were, we weren't breaking the law, but we weren't exactly telling the truth either. You know, we were definitely an international television service, but just by the nature of our overflow of our satellite footprint. Remember, we're broadcasting from Florida, so since, you know, uh, Caribbean and, and uh, Latin America and parts of South America are just in the view of the satellite. It just, it was a, just a by accident, as we say. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> just a by accident. That's the way it works. So, uh, so, have, so basically, you, you, communications you, council. I'm saying you guys could just hire talent, uh, uh, you know, just family and friends because you didn't have to abide by the rules of any television station. 
Well, honestly, um, I didn't hire most of the talent because I tried to stay out of that because it was so contentious. So I didn't hire... It just wound up that there was a, there was an ad agency that was doing the packaging when I arrived. They, they made the logo. They did the first bunch of VJ segments with people that they chose. And then when I arrived, I just said, you know, let's just keep these people because they're on board. We can't train new people. It's too late. So the, the VJs turned out to be um, Charlie Smith, the guy from the Bahamas. He became instrumental in the network happening because Charlie was a, a filmmaker and a producer and he had fabulously fabulous friends in the Bahamas and Florida that moved in the right circle. Charlie got us the interviews we needed to get early on. Charlie got us into all the events on South Beach. Charlie, uh, Charlie was like the, the backbone of the on-air talent far greater than anybody else, more than anybody realizes. Um, and, 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 uh, and then afterwards, Sandra Thigpen came in with the next producer who was brought in. And, uh, she's a big shot actress in Hollywood today. What's her name? You can look her up. Sandra Thigpen, T-H-I-G-P-N, Thigpen. Okay. And she's on everything. And every major network procedural she's been on. Look her up on IMDb. Mm-hmm. She's been on all sorts of commercials. And her, her name is, actually, her name is Sandra Thigpen Ferrari now. She's always gotten worse. Back in the day when we hired Sandra, she was doing all those videos with the, uh, the Fly Girl stuff. And she was superb and gorgeous and super nice. And, and she can read uh, prompter really well. And she would just do anything and a terrific attitude. And she was wonderful to work with. And she is very successful to this day. She's one of the few success stories <laughs> that came out of CSN. She has tremendous success uh, to this day. Uh, probably none of it due to us, but nevertheless. And uh, there was a couple other guys. There was, there was one guy that he hired that was, that was a comedian who uh, worked at all the local strip joints. South Florida, Craig, uh, Craig Corker, I think his name was. And, uh, and they were trying to at least make it look like, Hey, we're here for the American audience because remember we're a domestic satellite service. And, and, um, there was a lot of pushback because we didn't have any Jamaicans talking Pato on the service. And, and back then Jamaica was was the Caribbean. Yeah, but, 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 they, but they weren't the audience either. They, they weren't watching, especially in the U.S. And, and if we had somebody in there speaking real patois, they wouldn't have understood what he's saying, and it would have been a problem. So it, it, it didn't have, you know, they, there was a guy named Tony Chin that I really wanted to bring on, and I was really pushing for him because he was perfect. He was a DJ, and he had, he had lots of videos that he had shot, and he was the perfect guy. But nobody agreed with me. Everybody else was dead set against me. But it would have given us tremendous credibility. But I'm not saying I was outvoted, but everybody, nobody wanted him but me. Do you, do you think you super nice. Do you think you guys influenced nice uh, BET? Because remember, after CSN, BET then started... Uh, I mean, there was a whole wave yeah, of Caribbean of music. but Yeah, of course they copied us, the bastards. And if I were them, I'd have done the same thing, you know? In fact, when I got to CSN, there was a lot of people who were very suspicious of me. They were nuts, but they were very suspicious of me. They were like, he's there to destroy, he's from MTV to destroy us. <laughs> and I'm like, you're kidding. And one person actually called the network and they came back and they come summoned me into a meeting when I, when I just arrived from New York. And they're like, what about this? What about what? You're still an employee. I'm like, yeah, of course I'm still an employee. I get two weeks severance. The fuck is your problem? Yeah, I'm going to be an employee for the next week and a half because I get two weeks severance from MTV. No, I'm not fired yet. <laughs> Can we go now? Because, you know, some people just didn't want, you know, they didn't trust me. They didn't want a white guy there. They didn't want me in charge. And they're like, but MTV, they want to ruin us. And I, 
try to appeal to them and say, look, they could ruin us in a night, in four hours. It would take as little as four hours for them to set up one of their extra control rooms and take all the reggae videos and start playing them. If they wanted to ruin us, they could do it any day of the week. The fact is they have no interest in this because they don't see any money in it. So please, you know, the day MTV puts up a competing service, you can yell at me and call me a traitor and tell me I'm wrong, but that's not the way it is. If they wanted to ruin us, they could do it any day of the week. They just see us as too, we're too small to squish. And that's what it was. They didn't even, they didn't even know or care about that. I mean, I really wish it had been successful because I would be a much bigger player right now if CSN had been successful. Go ahead. Yeah, no, what are some of the, the lessons you think you learned from the entire experience? Lessons. Or takeaways oh in general. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, well, we're all quarantined. <laughs> well, you know, the, the time gives you a different perspective on things. When Delroy stopped paying for the satellite transponder time all of a sudden and just stopped everything, it was a fucking disaster because I'm leaving on a two-week cruise and my business just went belly up. And that's what happened. I went on a two-week cruise. I had had a vacation in years and, and my job had just been lost and the whole thing went belly up. And... And it was a really weird cruise because of that, because it, it was very nice, it was beautiful. It was a wonderful trip. I went all across Europe, and I saw all sorts of things I might never have seen otherwise. Um, and it was a real disaster, because, well, I think it's a pretty self-sufficient self thing. It was a real disaster, especially since both of us worked for the network. And in retrospect, I'm still glad I took the chance because it led to another job, which led to something else, which led to something else. And shouldn't, uh, you gotta take the long view if you can and try not to worry so much and enjoy the ride. Because sometimes, you know, the show's just for you and the ride is just for you. And sometimes no one hears your story, ever. <laughs> Mm -hmm. In fact, this is the first time anybody has ever heard my story outside of the people who lived it. Um, I'm honored. But, but it, it, it really did lead to bigger and better things because after a time I was hired by QVC as their vice president of broadcasting for uh, a much bigger network. Uh, and I ran a production at a facility with, that had half of Silver Cup Studios, you know, you know where Silver Cup is. That's where they shoot all sorts of TV shows and commercials. It's the old Silver Cup bakery in uh, Long Island City. But I went to run a network for QVC after that, and we had half of the, one of the biggest studios in New York. And uh, after a couple of years of home shopping, I had enough and said, it's time to use that law degree, and I've been practicing law happily ever since. So, so, are, are, so everything how, how old were you when you started doing law? Bigger. When you started practicing law? Well, I started practicing law as soon as I got my degree, and I got my degree in 1990, uh, December of, I, wait a, I finished my classes in December of 91. I graduated with my class in May of 1992, and I was 33 years old at that time. Mm. And then uh, a couple of years at CSN, then there was a couple of years at QVC, and uh Luckily, the QVC people had more money than God ever dreamed of. They <laughs> took everything I had. They took everything I had, including both of our cars, and put them on board trucks and moved us to New York. Uh, and that, I know that cost at least $15,000, $20,000. And they paid me more money than I've ever earned in my life to run their network uh, for a couple of years until it, it also failed, which is another story. QVC's out of business? And... No, no, but their 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 sister channel, which was called Q Two, is out of business. Okay. They have a QVC two. They have a different channel now, but they're all run out of the main offices and studios in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Okay. The idea of Q Two, which is the network I was running, was that it would be a high end, high fashion home shopping channel, 
we had fashion models running around the place from the uh, Wilhelmina Agency day and night. Oh, wow. Selling panties and bikini waxing and high fashion. And Isabella Rossellini was there all the time. Joan Rivers was in the studio all the time selling her jewelry and stuff. You know, so that, was, what's crazy, angle, that might actually work today. high-end home shopping. Nah, it's a big failure because people don't, people don't go home shopping. Oh, that's true. If everybody wants a ceramic poodle. Every, and Grandma down in the trailer park uh, in, in Opalaka does not want that. They want the ceramic poodle with the name of their granddaughter on it. Um, as it turned out, it was not a great... It was Barry Diller's concept, believe it or not. And uh, it was not something he talks about anymore. But... Um, after Diller left, they needed someone to come in and run operations and engineering, and I wound up working for them for a couple of years until it also uh, was no more. And then by that time, I, I was I, I'd, I'd rotted the minds of America's youth for long enough, and it was time to put <laughs> something back and start defending start defending these same people in criminal court. So. It, there's a, it comes full circle, you know. We were watching MTV. We're not going to take it, rocking around the clock and all that shit, and created a whole generation of thugs and criminals. And now when they're speeding down the road at 100 miles an hour with their younger brother hanging out the sunroof smoking weed, who are they going to call to defend themselves? They call Uncle Dave. David is so, <laughs> I, 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 I make my living, you know, defending those people whose lives I ruined so long ago. And uh, everything is like the circle of life. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet 30. Our email address is onplanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com.